This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This week in the news, three are convicted in the downing of Malaysian flight MH17 over Ukraine. Two warbirds collide at a Texas air show. A court orders Iberia to limit carry-on weight for the A350. A-10s and B-1Bs as attack aircraft. An airport closure leaves seaplanes without a fuel source. GA airplane shipments increase. The G-700 on a world tour. And a sustainable fuel plant is planned for northern Maine. All that and a special kind of announcement is coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 725 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is first David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, all. Looking forward to tonight. Sorry we missed last week, but it looks like all of us were running around doing things. Um, I have a little bit of special news, but we'll save that for yes, later. Yes, and it is very special. Can hardly wait. Also with us is Max Trescott. He's host of the fantastic Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year and an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft. Hey, great to be here. In fact, I'm just barely here by the skin of my teeth, and I'll talk more about that later, but didn't expect to be here for this show, and things uh, things didn't go well on a flight today, and so I'm I'm here, which is great. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. We're glad things didn't go <laughs> really badly bad. on the flight. Too bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a, a limit there. Speaking of limits, with us also is Rob Mark. He's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation. That's part of the Aviation Week group. And, of course, he's publisher at JetWine.com. I, I wondered if you were going to be in how, how you were going to introduce me. I, I wondered what the segue was going to be, actually. And uh, you did a, a just bang-up job, Max. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> I wasn't sure what I was going to say. Um, so I'll just move right on and uh, also introduce our main man, Micah, who's with us this episode. And it's wonderful to be here. I'm here as a fill-in for Max Trescott, but he's here, and you didn't kick me out. You like me. You really, really like me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, I, I think I should uh, modify the uh, the introduction, Micah, and also give you credit for being uh, part of the podcast that you do with uh, our friend uh, Brian Coleman. The journey is the reward. We've been having a lot of fun with that and more news on that a little later. Okay. But we have a lot coming up later. But first, we've got some aviation news from the past week. Is everyone ready? Ready from the West. Ready from the Midwest. Ready from down South. And I'm mainly ready. First item... Three convicted in 2014 downing of Malaysian jet over Ukraine. This comes from Hype. We found this on Hype, Hype Aviation. And you'll recall Malaysian flight MH17 from Amsterdam was headed to Kuala Lumpur. It was shot down over Ukraine with a Russian surface-to-air missile. And, of course, all 
passengers and crew, 230, uh, 283 passengers and 15 crew aboard the uh, 777-200ER perished. And so, Rob, we see that, well, there's been an investigation, but also some action that's resulted from that. Short and sweet, I'm glad they got the guys. I mean, we always knew that the, uh, well, the suspicion was that the missile came from the uh, uh, area of uh, Ukraine that was under dispute from uh, or or occupied by Russian uh, separatists. And uh, the court agreed, finally. The only downside, of course, is that these three were uh, convicted in absentia. Uh, And for those of you who don't understand that, like I didn't until I looked it up, uh, it means that uh, unfortunately they don't have the uh, the uh, ability to uh, to drag them to jail. Uh, they're out running about, but they know who they are. Right. They received life life sentences from the court, and it was two Russians and one pro Moscow Ukrainian. But I guess the question is, what does this really mean? These three guys are still at large and probably not going to get them. They, there was a fine of uh, $16.5 million, and nobody knows who's going to pay it or if it's going to be paid. So there was a trial, and there was a conviction, and there was a fine. Yeah, I think it's so mostly what? symbolic. Well, I think it, it proved to the court, at least, at least to the court's satisfaction, that these three were actually responsible for the, uh, for the hit. Uh, of course, the separatist area of uh, Ukraine has denied this for all these years. Of course, what else did we expect them to do? But the only part of this story that I didn't quite get, and maybe one of you did, uh, is that it mentioned that the um, uh, they thought perhaps the flight was a military airplane as opposed to a civilian airplane, but they gave no explanation of that idea at all. Did, did you guys see anything further on it? Because I didn't. No, I, th- I think the... The defense, if you will, or the claim was that they thought it was a military plane that they were shooting down. They didn't realize they were shooting down a a, a commercial jetliner. And they've used that defense before, which is what happened with KAL 007, was they thought it was a um, a combat scent or an electronic um, EC-135 when they shot down the 747. So, I mean, it's... And unfortunately, even the United States has done it when we took out the um, Iraqi, I mean, the Iranian A300 that we thought was um, going to attack in the Persian Gulf. So, I mean, while it's not foolproof, but identifying IFF, identifying friend or foe is kind of tricky business, especially if you have people who aren't familiar or aren't accustomed to using the systems like the pro-Russian Ukrainians were. I think Micah's point about what's the the upshot of it all is you think about those three people, they are now not ever going to be able to leave Russia. Maybe that's not a big deal. Maybe they never plan to, but I think they're just going to become subject to arrest anytime they leave the country and end up in any of the Western countries. I'm guessing there will be a a uh, full-time, a permanent arrest warrant out for them in the Western nations. And one thing with the uh, with the, what was it the uh, Iranian uh, A three hundred uh, flight six fifty five, 
the Vincennes called out to that flight several times before they shot. They tried to get it. They tried to do the uh, the uh, friend or foe thing. There was no response, and so they, they were, there were seconds left before, if it was uh, a military aircraft coming at them, they had to destroy it before it was going to destroy them. Well, I think for all intents and purposes, you know, this this chapter is closed now. And I, you know, to Rob's point, I, I don't know that anything is really going to happen beyond this point. This is it. This is as much as the families get for, you know, some little shred of justice, perhaps. But I think this is probably the end of it. Oh, I'm sure it probably is. All right. From uh, many, many sources, of course, I think everybody is uh, familiar with the air show crash near Dallas, uh, the uh, P-63 King Cobra fighter and a Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress collided at a commemorative Air Force show near Dallas. And, of course, the uh, the pilot of the P-63, as well as all five occupants aboard the B-17, perished in that collision. So, of course, the, uh, the NTSB is conducting an investigation. I don't think the, um, well, the NTSB has made some statements to the press, but uh, there's, I think there's no preliminary finding uh, yet. And and of course, as we know, the NTSB investigations typically take two years or, or thereabouts for an incident like this. But there's a lot of speculation going on, some of it informed, some of it less so. Every time there's an an accident like this, a fatal accident, we uh, we always caution about drawing any conclusions too quickly. Uh, but it's it's really difficult to uh, to not speculate on it. We sort of have a I think there's a natural tendency for people to speculate as to what might have happened here. Well, the, the one thing I think we do know is that the uh, design of the P sixty three. Uh, from a number of sources, said that the cockpit was very tight and that at the angle the uh, fighter chopped the tail off of the B-17, the pilot most likely couldn't even see the B-17. And there have been a number of theories. Uh, uh, of course, uh, Mr. McSpadden from AOPA, who's the uh, uh, director of their AOPA Safety Institute, uh, who is also... Uh, a lead pilot at one time with the uh, the Thunderbirds understands how this whole circuit uh, air show so- circuit works, and uh, and he made the same comment that the uh, uh, it was unfortunate that the P sixty three was traveling as fast as he was, uh, but again he gave the theory that uh, the P sixty three was trying to catch up with the uh, the two P fifty ones that was in front of it. But of course, it's it's basic aerodynamics. The faster you go when you turn, the larger the turn radius of the aircraft. And uh, it's it sounds as though he exceeded the the safe zone uh, that he was expected to be in, and that's really really unfortunate. Um, Max, did you have something you were going to add? Oh, I was going to say, you know, to, to tag on to what you said. Uh, turn radius increases with the square of the speed. So if you're 10% faster, your turn radius is 21% larger. So it gets larger faster. And if you look at the video, you can see the P-51s overfly. And it's pretty obvious that they are considerably slower 
than the uh, the P63 was. Uh, and so for whatever reason, he was fast. It just means that anytime he's in a turn, he's going to have a much, much, much larger turn radius. And once he raised that wing, he probably lost a uh, view of the uh, the, the uh, B-17. So <laughs> all I could say is it, it just seems like either this routine hadn't been you know practiced uh, well enough or somehow they deviated from the routine uh, but clearly this this was not not the way the plan was supposed to work out. Armando Carrion of the uh, PTUK podcast uh, this week, he talked about it. He's familiar with the, with the air show and with air shows in general. And he said that there were two flight lines that they were supposed to follow. The B-17 was on one and all the fighters were on a second. And what his thoughts were is that the P-63 lined up on the B-17's flight line, missed the first one, saw the wrong one, was making the turn to get onto the flight line he was supposed to be on. But because of the uh, visual situation of the P-63, it's got a very strange kind of cockpit. He lined up with the wrong one and went right into the B-17, which makes a lot of sense. Again, it's all speculation, but Armando, I think, uh, and I didn't hear the entire thing, but he flew, has flown that, that air show in the past and, um, and, and had, and I, so I would highly suggest that if our listeners want to, I would, Go back to that PTUK episode and, and give that a listen for some some really nice insights onto it. Uh, the the other thing that I wanted to say, if I uh, have it, if I remember correctly, then I mean, it's a tragic, terrible, terrible accident. But what makes it even more tragic is I believe that was the last flying example of a P sixty three in the world, um, and I don't think we're going to see another one of those uh, flying anytime soon. Well, one of the basic rules of teaching people how to fly is you never, ever, ever put traffic in a blind spot. I mean, the P-63 pilot most likely knew the B-17 was out there somewhere, and he was supposed to, however he was supposed to turn or which line he was supposed to maintain clearance from, I mean, he couldn't see the B-17, apparently. And and that's just that's just... I, I, I don't understand that. I, I I just, that part I do not understand. Yeah, the problem with being fast is you can get into uh, trouble very, very quickly. I think of the midair collision down at Watsonville where he had a twin that was doing easily, you know, 40 to 60 knots faster than he should. I just, you know, I'm always trying to encourage people, use the time machine, which is that throttle. You know, pull that throttle back. It creates more time, just allows you to get a better handle on the situation, get all the stuff you need done. So, yeah, uh, definitely slow up, folks. Doesn't make sense when you're in the airport environment to, to be fast. And what's interesting is the P-63 was not a particularly fast aircraft. The, the P-51s were much faster aircraft, yet anyway, it overtook them. Maybe David has some uh, th- some thoughts. That P-63 is a mid-engine aircraft. And I didn't know that there were any aircraft that had the, had the engine in the middle, at least not a World War II fighter. It was, David, is that unique amongst uh, fighters? Well, it's brother was the same way, or, or father, the Bell Company came up with the mid-engine concept for the P-39 and the Aero Cobra and the Aero Bonita. Um, it was a, where the engine was behind the cockpit. It um, was not very good as a high-altitude fighter. The U.S. Army Air Corps or you know, U.S. Army Air Forces did not like 
the Aracuda, uh, I mean the King Cobra, and the majority of them actually were sent to Russia. Um, likewise, the P-39, the majority of them was sent to Russia because they were really quality, low-level aircraft. And because there was no engine in the front, you could put a larger web cannon in the front. So they were great ground attack aircraft. And primarily the King Cobra production went to um, Europe and Russia on under Lend-Lease. Um, we hardly used them. Um, there's about... 10 of them left in the world as far as King Gobras. Uh, for P-39s, there's like five left. But yeah, the, the mid-engine behind the cockpit was definitely a Bell thing. There are some other aircraft scattered throughout World War II, but um, yeah, it was kind of the Pontiac Fiero of its day. Uh, <laughs> um, I remember those. A, well, a very I, fine I, car. <laughs> I, I say that because I owned an 86 Fiero. Um, yeah. I had a friend who had one who had lots of trouble. Did that car work out for you? I put 230000 on it before it died. Oh, good. I never had any problems with it. But, yes, it, it was the earlier version of my – the 84 was the one that was always catching on fire. Ah. By the 86, they had sort of figured that out. But um, good. it's not – it was not a common thing. Um, one of the complaints was the center of gravity was different, you know, because all the weight was behind the pilot. Mm. Interestingly enough, if you read General Yeager's biography, he thought the P-39 was one of the greatest airplanes ever. But then again, he also thought the F-20 was one of the greatest airplanes ever. So I've never quite figured out what Yeager was thinking. Um, but as far as a ground attack aircraft, both the P-39 and P-63 were very successful against German armor in the Soviet Union. So hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking about this accident uh, going forward as we get more facts, uh, more information from the NTSB. So stay tuned for that. But uh, let's go from looking into the past to looking into the future, and specifically NASA's Orion spacecraft. Uncrewed, I uh, just flew within 81 miles of the moon. Uh, Rob, it's been a long time since we've had anything that close to the moon. Why did you start out with Rob? It's been a long time indicating that I would be the guy to ask something that might be very historical. Uh, or was that just a coincidence? No, it was not a coincidence. Oh, okay. You, you got it right. <laughs> 50 years ago, we were last. Yeah, year. this is pretty cool, I think. I mean... I uh, I was watching the video of uh, of NASA as they uh, they said, well, we're about to uh, we're about to lose contact with the uh, spacecraft as it goes around behind the moon. And I went, wow, I I mean that that is just very very neat. Uh, and uh, but again, I don't know if anybody saw the Artemis launch. Uh, it happened at I don't know one o'clock in the morning, I think, or something. Chicago time, but they said that it was uh, that this new rocket is more powerful than the um, Saturn V, and uh, that it just shook the ground like nothing people had ever experienced. So I, I think that when they have the next launch, we have to have a local correspondent down there, uh, no matter what time it launches, to be there to actually uh, feel it and hear the launch. But Ducky, we're talking to you, by the way. 
Yeah, well, I volunteer as well. I'm I'm definitely uh, going to try to do that. But that's in uh, twenty. Isn't the next launch in twenty twenty four though? There's, I don't think there's a launch next year. Is there a launch next year? Yeah, I thought it spilled over into twenty four. But okay, yeah, because I think they're talking about twenty twenty four being a uh, an actual manned launch, aren't they? A crude launch. Crude. Let's Sorry, let's. that's. Let's let's get out of the let's get up to date with the lingo, Rob. It's a crude launch oh. because it. Well, you know, even though the Orion uses old rocket engines from the space shuttle, it doesn't make it that crude. <laughs> it's pretty advanced, right? <laughs> See, at, okay, and, and 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 Micah, let's get this straight: the the Orion spacecraft is does not use space shuttle engines. The space launch system, the SLS uses right. the RS space as well as the solid rocket boosters from the shuttle. So Orion is a separate system beyond the Space Launch System or the SLS. The boosters are the same as the shuttle boosters? The, the solid, the rocket, solid boosters? rocket boosters and the main engines, whereas the shuttle had three RS-71 engines. The Space Launch System has four as well as the two solid rocket boosters that they use to take off. So that orange tank with the four engines in it are ba is basically used shuttle tech. Um, and then the, Ar the Orion spacecraft and the um, European Space Agency uh, module that's behind, behind the Orion spacecraft um, are a separate or separate individual thing. So... Yeah, and that uh, those rocket engines were used by mandate of Congress. Hey, I looked it up. The next Artemis launch, Artemis Two, is going to be May of twenty twenty four, and does say it's crewed and it's about ten day duration, and it will be a lunar flyby. And you know, it is almost fifty years to the day because it was December fourteenth that uh, Gene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt Schmidt uh, left the moon on Apollo seventeen and deorbited and came back. So uh, it's almost close to fifty years, like I said, to the day. Gene Cernan was one of my heroes, as you guys know. Do you know, I had a chance to meet Gene Cernan uh, oh seven eight years ago. He was at a uh, a business aviation safety conference, and and I, myself and two other guys had lunch with him, and I said, "Okay, so what was it like when you landed on the moon and you got out?" He said, "It's pretty cool." Jeez, <laughs> oh, that's what I would have said. I mean, but he was he was a nice guy. It's too bad he's gone. Yeah, that's exactly what I would have expected from him. He was that kind of guy. All right, pushing on. Let's uh, look at the A350 and carry-on luggage. Now, uh, this is from PaddleYourOwnCanoe.com. Well, Airbus has been offering larger overhead luggage bins, both as new equipment and as a retrofit. And they call these the XL bins. The XL bins on the A350 are really, really large. In fact, Airbus says that uh, those compartments on the, that A350 can accommodate five full-sized carry-on suitcases. Um, they're kind of the typical cantilevered bin design. They're uh, designed to hold a maximum, it says here, of 30 to 45 kilograms. I don't know why there's a range, but that's roughly 66 to 99 pounds, which is kind of a lot. And they fold up into the ceiling. Well, I guess, Micah, the uh, the flight attendants at Iberia have uh, felt that uh, this was a 
pretty big burden to get these big, heavy bins folded back up. And they took some action, didn't they? Yeah, they took it to court and they said, look, we shouldn't have to close these things up. These things could weigh up to 100 pounds each, and there are 112 of them on an A350. And they brought it to court and said, look, this isn't our responsibility because, you know, you've seen – when you've flown, you've seen people not be able to close the thing up, not maybe being tall enough to do it, not being strong enough to do it. And with these extra large bins, it's just incredibly, incredibly difficult. And the court said, nope, still got to do it. You got to close it up. Part of your union responsibilities. And again, the flight attendants are fighting it. And for good reason. It's crazy having to lift 100 pounds, not just lift it up, but lift it up over your head. Yeah, the the flight attendants had asked the court to uh, order that the bins be replaced with smaller bins uh, or to flat out ban Iberia from expecting the flight attendants to close the the XL bins. But those uh, demands were dismissed by the judge. But still, the judge did rule that Iberia has to start weighing passenger carry-on luggage and make sure that that Iberia's own weight allowance was was being adhered to by the passengers. So there is that small kind of kind of change. And they also said that uh, if uh, the flight attendants are under five foot four, that's 1.63 meters, that they can require two cabin crew to close a locker together to minimize the risk of injury. But come on, this this is just Another reason why I truly believe that airlines should be charging for carry-on and checking bags for free. It would speed things, speed up the boarding process. It would keep flight attendants from being injured, and it would just save a lot of time. Yeah, I I actually agree with you on that, Micah, um, and and maybe even go a little bit farther because I think you know the solution to the carry-on issue is not let's make in my mind is not let's make bigger and bigger overhead bins because people are just going to bring more and more stuff on the plane. The root of the problem is that it takes too long to get your checked baggage back. And if they work on that problem, try to find creative solutions to that problem, then I I think we'd all be better off for it. Because I I tell you, I I hate trips where I bring everything on carry-on. I hate lugging all that stuff around through the airport. I'd much rather waltz through the airport with just a you know a, a light bag of bare essentials and have all the rest of it checked. But in order for me to do that, I need to be able to get it. Well, first, I need to be able to get it back. I need to have it show up at the carousel in the first place. And I need it to, to get back to me quickly. And it, it, it just doesn't happen. So people are going to continue to carry as much as they can on their bodies, in their pockets, in their fancy vests with 65 different compartments and their carry-on. And it slows you down everywhere. It slows you down in the boarding process. It slows you down in the deboarding process. It slows you down at TSA trying to get through to the airport. It just, there is no point in it. And if the airlines want to offer actually the best service, again, one of the ways to do it is to say, now, if you want to bring on a carry-on, that's great. It's going to cost you $60. You want to check it? No problem. That's free, and it'll just speed things up completely. Well, you know, it's funny, though, because Southwest hasn't charged for bags. And uh, I, I, I watch this all the time, and it's still just as big a mess boarding a Southwest flight because people bring 
uh, cases that look like they have enough room to put two kids in and then try and have, you know, get that sucker up. I mean, and I, I just, why would you do that? They're not even charging you to check. Well, most people tell me that they're afraid they're going to lose the bag. Yeah, it goes and back to that. I, I've lost a bag once and I got it back. It took 10 days, but I got it back. Have, have you guys ever lost a bag for good? Not for good. I lost a bag for three days. That was on a, a business trip to uh, Italy. And that, that's, if, you, if, if a bag is lost, at least temporarily, you'd really like it to be lost on your way home, not on your way out. So, uh, you know, I had meetings with the airline and with others uh, for a number of days where, you know, I had to get creative with <laughs> showing up with clothing that, uh, you know, that was at least a little bit fresh. But I think it's a little less likely. You don't hear about lost luggage quite as much. I don't know if that's because more people are carrying on or because the airlines are getting better. And plus, in these days of air tags and tiles and things like that, you can locate your own luggage and let the airline know where it is. Yeah, you really shouldn't have to tell them. But yeah, you can. You know, the ultimate solution solves everything you guys have talked about. Just wear about eight layers of clothing onto the airplane. Solves the problem right there. Bring it <laughs> no hand in the luggage, no check luggage. Wear it all with you. Scotty vests and Scotty jackets. Yep. That'll do it. And then they sit in the middle seat. <laughs> Perspiring. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. U.S. Air Force wants to use A-10 Thunderbolt II attack aircraft along with B-1B Lancer supersonic bombers to destroy enemy air defense systems. Uh, the Air Force, of course, has tried for years to drop the A-10, and B-1B deliveries ceased in 1988. In fact, the last A-10 delivery was 1984. So, I mean, these are not exactly current technology aircraft. but Well, they're newer than the B-52. But they are newer than the B-52. Everything is newer than the B-52, I think. Maybe not the KC-135. <laughs> yeah, close. Yeah. I think I'm newer than the B-52. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's the uh, miniature air-launched decoy that, uh, I guess, David, is is a drone, a decoy drone, and they see a role for that with these aircraft. Yeah, um, and again, what's old is new. There used to be something called the quail which was a small drone that be dropped from a B-52 that um, put out the radar signature of about six B-52s. When you were doing a low-level penetration of the Soviet Union, um, the intention was to launch two of these quails and have them go in different directions. So the um, surface-to-air missiles and the um, missile tracking systems would get confused due to the volume. So, you know, there's... There's more than there's more than a dozen B-52s attacking in various different directions, um, and this is just the same concept. Only it's a lot smaller. A quail was a small was really a small little jet airplane. These are smaller and again remote piloted aircraft. And if you can if you can confuse the enemy or they or loyal wingmen um, be force multiplier, it's a good thing. The U.S. Air Force is got some exercises at uh, Guam that have been using the B-1B paired with the A-10. So 
I don't know if this is something that they're just still testing or something that they are going to uh, to make operational, this, this different concept, but at least they've been testing it, I guess. How many B-1Bs are still out there? Uh, approximately 80. Yeah, didn't they make 100 of them? They made 100 of them, yes, and, and attrition is, I think down to 80 and I think they're actually it's even less than that now because there are there are quite a few parked in the boneyard. Hmm. You scroll down further in the article it's really interesting to see just how cost effective the the B1B is. It says that it costs uh, the Air Force $22,000 an hour to operate a B1B versus a uh, B52 $88,000 for about four times as much or a B2 151,000 or about double that for 60 minutes of uh, bombing time. Huh. I'm surprised that the B52 is more expensive than the B1, the B1B. Well, I mean that's one of the re-engineering issues. Uh, one of the re-engineering issues is to become more cost of, to um extend besides extend the service life is to make it more cost efficient you know and lower the um cost per hour with the new jet engines the b52 so um the and the b1s we've got our money's worth but they are wearing out you know they where the b1s attrition occurred was we've used them so much on the war on terror that um they've been basically permanently deployed ever since we demilled them for um, nuclear attack. I mean, they have been primarily used for conventional attack, and that has worn them out. So, and just keep in mind that we're this as we're recording this, we're only two weeks away from the debut of the B twenty one. That looks like a B two. Very similar. Yes, it, a flying wing does look like a lot of times like a flying wing. There are there are differences, especially in size. A more spacious cabin. Uh, Actually, the B twenty the B twenty one is smaller than the B two. Oh, I didn't know that. But doesn't it have larger overhead cabin bins to? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, it does. Okay. The, you know, it has the larger overhead cabin bins to um, deploy additional weapons um, storage. Yeah. All right. Next item uh, comes from the Press Herald. This is another story about an airport closing, but this is it's a little bit different. This is Twitchell Airport in Maine. It's the last, reportedly, the last privately owned and commercially operated airport in Maine. It's been operating for 76 years. So the, the landowners are selling the 145 acres that the airport and most maybe importantly the seaplane facilities share there. Reportedly, they're going to build a self-storage facility on that location. Oh, we need more of those for sure. Yeah, yeah. I know. And, and some more dollar stores, too. Maybe they'll put a couple of dollar stores up there. But the big issue or a, a big issue is that, uh, Micah, this um, is the only seaplane base for quite some distance that can provide um, fuel for the sea, for seaplanes. Yeah, according to the Press Herald, that it is the only seaplane base where you can get gas between Green, Maine and Rhode Island. That's about 300 miles. 
And the main warden service uses it all the time. They will fuel up their seaplanes, and that's what they use for search and rescue because when you're searching, you know, up north, uh, there's a lot of times you don't have a place to land except on a pond, and, and there are certainly a few ponds up there. And there's just no other place nearby, according to what the Press Herald has to say. It's, uh, it's near uh, Auburn, Lewiston-Auburn, Maine, which is uh, where, where we went, Max, to when we met uh, Mac McCauley. And, uh, but it's on uh, the Androscoggin River, and uh, it's just going. And I, it's very sad because we see a lot of these small airports disappearing around the country. And, you know, as they say, politically, as goes Maine, so goes the nation. And I think we'll see the same thing airport-wise. I'm sure uh, this is, must be something that I would imagine you've discussed on, uh, on, uh, on your show, Max, Max T. You know, I haven't talked a lot about uh, seaplanes on that show, though. I, I did have one for a few years. I think the, the big challenge will be for people that have non-amphibious seaplanes, uh, because those, those seaplanes can't land at airports. I would imagine that uh, you know, a significant number of the, the, the main uh, you know, fish and wildlife airplanes might be amphibious, in which case they can land at an airport to, uh, to get fuel. But there is a small percentage of uh, seaplanes out there which are just on floats. They're not amphibious. And it's really hard for those people to move around the country because there just aren't that many places as you, as you move across the country where you can put a non-amphibious seaplane down. Yeah, and up there, you know, there's lakes up there, and they have people that have cabins along the river, and a lot of seaplane owners that, uh, uh, you know, are going to have 75 to 100 pilots are going to have to find uh, you know, a new place to, to do tie-downs. And, and Twitchell's does, uh, again, according to the article, between 50 and 75 float-to-tire conversions every year because people will put floats on in the summer and put tires on in the winter. And, uh, you know, it's just not a lot of places around that can do that anymore. And, and I knew of them because they are one of the very few places, if not the only place in the country, where you could rent a 172 and go fly it away uh, solo on uh, floats. Uh, the insurance is extremely high in seaplanes because every time you have an accident, it sinks. <laughs> and so the aircraft is usually a total loss, which means that insurance rates are much, much, much higher. And frankly, even though it's pretty quick and simple to get a, a seaplane rating, you can get in trouble a lot faster in a seaplane than you can in a normal aircraft because you know water changes and you're dealing with a runway that's moving. And seaplane pilots say that every landing is unique because no two are really the same. So yeah, it's it's going to be too bad to to lose that one place where you could rent a 172 on float solo. Yeah, you know, seaplanes are particularly important up here in Maine, and you see them uh, a lot of times. In fact, there's a, a, a beautiful yellow cub that's on floats with wheels that I see coming into uh, to Mac jets at uh, Portland, Maine, pretty regularly. But uh, but and, and and Max, you attended a, a seaplane festival one time up here in Maine, didn't you? Um, not Sikorsky. Not in Maine. I thought you went up to the Sikorsky uh, camp. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, okay, I did, yeah. But that wasn't a seaplane festival. That was a um, history of a uh, Sikorsky uh, event, which um, that was a number of years ago. I'm kind of thinking I need to go back up there. Um, but I did uh, find Twitchell Airport in Google Maps, and I switched to satellite view, and I zoomed way in and started searching around, and and I found Gulf Island Pond close to it, adjacent to it, to the airport. And you could see lots of little, you know, in Google uh, satellite view, lots of little seaplanes along the, uh, you know, borders of the pond there. Uh, quite a few of them, actually. But, you know, because this was a privately owned 
airport. I guess there's nothing anybody could ever do in terms of keeping it from being sold. Except buy it. Except buy it. But so yeah, it might be too late for that. But uh, if if this had been an airport operated by, you know, a, a municipal authority or, you know, some local government agency, would do you guys know, would the F, would the FAA been able to like step in or something and say, no, this needs to continue to, to operate? Do they have that kind of power over a publicly owned, I guess, airport? Typically, their leverage comes through FAA grants. And so anytime an airport accepts money from the FAA, they are essentially uh, signing a document that says, hey, we will leave this as an airport for the next 20 years. And so one of the strategies uh, places have used to try and close their airports is to stop taking uh, federal grant money. And that's something that happened at Reed Hill View, I want to say about 12 years ago. Uh, and so there's a clock running on, on that airport uh, and so, yeah, uh, I think that um, that's about the only leverage FAA has on keeping up uh, airports open. Okay. And just uh, to clarify a little bit, Gulf Island Pond, which is right there by uh, Twitchells, that's where people take off and land. It's actually just a wide spot in the Androscoggin River, which is the main river that flows between Lewiston and Auburn, Maine, the, the Twin Cities, also known as L.A. Maine, believe it or not. Um, and uh, But I think what would make that interesting is that you would be you know, landing on a pond with a current running through it the whole time. And I think that would uh, would, would change your your, your, your your piloting skills a little bit, wouldn't it, Max? Yes, no question. I mean, mostly ponds tend to be, uh, you know, fairly stable, but a current moving through it, yeah, that would that would change it. So before we move on, just a quick shout out to our listener, Steve, who uh, sent us uh, this article. So uh, Steve surfaced this as, as well as Micah. So uh, thanks. We always like it when people send in articles or topics that they'd like us to, to discuss. But moving on to the next one, Gulfstream unveils newest business jet model G700 in Nigeria. Well, in fact, Gulfstream Aerospace is taking two G700 aircraft on a world tour. They're taking it to major events and private showings. And I guess reportedly they're going to stop at some 20 cities. So these are a couple of fully outfitted G700 production test aircraft that they're taking around. So, uh, Rob, this is a, I mean, it's a kind of a promotional tour for the aircraft. Is that, uh, is that the purpose of this? Oh, ab- absolutely. Uh, and the, uh, they, they'll, they'll use probably three different sets of crews for the airplane uh, because it's going to be in so many cities uh, around the world. Uh, but they essentially took 700, which is, uh, one of the newest uh, Gulf Streams, the G800, is uh, about to debut as well. It's a few tweaks on a 700. Uh, but they took it to a uh, an executive jet uh, seminar in, uh, I think it was Lagos in Nigeria, to uh, to show them uh, executive jet being the uh, membership uh, use group uh, for uh, private jets where you can buy a half of a jet or a quarter of a jet uh, and and not have to uh, own the thing outright and see it sitting around. Uh, I have only seen the mock-up. I saw the mock-up of the 700 at an NBAA show a couple of years ago, and it looks like a typical big fancy uh, jet that has lots of cool stuff in it, 
and plenty of room for your friends and friends of your friends and uh, sleeping rooms and TV rooms. And, uh, and, and you know, to, to your question, too, you mentioned, uh, is business uh, uh, aviation getting a bad rap? Uh, and to some degree it is because there was a uh, there were a number of protests in uh, uh, in Europe this past weekend and uh, something here in the U.S., I forgot where exactly, but uh, people saying that these are uh, uh, gas-guzzling, uh, dirty emissions, uh, spitting airplanes for the ultra-rich. And um, unfortunately, I think it's time that uh, business aviation probably stopped looking as though it was marketing only to the ultra-rich because it's probably... 60-40, with uh, 60% of the new owners being companies that actually use these aircraft for for business, not just to transport the uh, kids of wealthy folks from uh, Seattle to Miami so they can have a weekend uh, getaway. Uh, but unfortunately, that's what a lot of people still think. And uh, But again, I think business aviation has a long way to go uh, to to beat that. But that said, uh, the 700 is uh, is a marvelous airplane. Big, big long cabin, 30, 35 feet long, I think it is. And you, you think of how how wide your house is or how long your house. 35 feet is a pretty good, pretty good distance there. Um, and uh, the only, uh, I, I think it's uh, 7,500 nautical miles uh, It'll do Seattle to Tokyo direct or New York to uh, Tokyo or, you know, those kinds of things. But now me, I don't want to be on an airplane that long. I, I like to land and get out and stretch my feet a little bit and see some of the uh, the local sites. But, of course, there are people that uh, that use them. But, of course, Gulfstream has the edge on uh, on speed because uh, they can cruise at uh, uh, Mach 0.90, which is pretty quick, and um, uh, it's uh, it's it's nice to go places quick. Uh, the only competition they have is the uh, the upcoming Falcon 10X, which has a uh, a cabin slightly shorter, but it is wider than the uh, cabin in the uh, G 700. So. It's kind of six of one, half a dozen of another. They're similarly priced, uh, similar range. Uh, the 10X is a little slower than the Gulfstream. Um, but, you know, when you pull up on the... I don't know if you ever notice that when we watch uh, telly and, and you see all the... Every show where there's a business jet pulling up, it's always a Gulfstream. It's always a Gulfstream. I mean, with one or two rare exceptions, uh, we were watching something last night, and I went, there it is, another Gulfstream. I mean, how the Gulfstream PR people work this into the media world over the last 20 years is beyond me, but... Well, they give out the best swag, he said, as he points to his Gulfstream 650 hat, you know? I mean, that's why. <laughs> oh, is that what that is? Yeah. <laughs> Mike is wearing the hat. It's probably, it's probably the... Well, you know, now that the Learjets have been gone for a while, I mean, Gulfstreams people know uh, they really do uh, more than almost any other business jet. But uh, I saw that Elon Musk uh, bought one, 
78 million uh, apparently but then of course uh, you still have to uh, it's usually in a a green configuration or uh, with minimal uh, interior and then they'll send it out to uh, a place uh, like uh, Duncan Aviation over here in Battle Creek it'll be down for a few months and they'll put a real interior in it for 8 or 10 million dollars more but Somehow, I think uh, you know Elon is probably not worried about that uh, that uh, that price tag. Well, you know he's he's going to have a big tax write off when Twitter fails, so everything <laughs> will be fine. Uh, yeah, we have to talk about that later. Speaking of Elon, I was uh, at the San Jose airport about ten days ago on a Saturday evening, and the person I said I was with said, "Oh, look, there goes a, a G seven hundred taxing buy." And my instant thought was, "Oh, I had read about Elon buying one. Was that possibly him? Because yeah, that's certainly the closest airport to Tesla's." A factory in uh, in Fremont, Newark uh, area of uh, California. Twitter, of course, is not that far up the street uh, from there in in San Francisco. Uh, and I did get onto a, a G seven hundred mock up and and got the hat for that one a few years ago. They had them on display at uh, the Monterey Airport, uh, and Monterey often has uh, you know, things like that because uh, there are various. Uh, events that go on the Monterey area that draw in a lot of people in their private jets to to come visit. And so this was just out there on the ramp for people to uh, check it out. I, I did have one thought when you're talking about competitors, Rob. Uh, the, the one competitor you men, didn't mention would be something like the Boeing business jet. Uh, that certainly is an alternative. And it's got a much wider cabin. And so I, I was thinking, I wonder why Elon wouldn't get one of those. But perhaps it's the speed. I think it's, it's probably slower. a little little faster. Yeah, it's it's slower. You know, and you say Rob that you know you want to get out to, you know, walk around and stretch your legs and whatever. If you if you're if you can afford your your Gulfstream 700, you can also afford to put a Peloton on it too, you know. It's uh, <laughs> I say walk from the trunk to the uh, cockpit and back and yeah. forth. Or take and, and you know and you know Max T, if you want to find out if that is Elon's jet, you can follow that on Twitter. It's uh, Elon Jet at on Twitter, and you can you can follow him. We had the the guy that created that uh, on uh, on Isaac's chat uh, uh, a few few months ago. That was that was pretty interesting. I'm surprised Elon hasn't shut that down now that he owns the company. Yeah, no, they they worked out a de- he worked out a deal with him. They they offered to buy him out. He said no. They worked something out and. Apparently, it's all set. Oh. Free speech, I think, is what he's uh, saying. So if he shut him down, then it's like, Whoa, Oh, yeah, would... that means a lot coming from, from Donald. <laughs> I'm sorry. From, from Nilo Scum? That's my favorite anagram. I made that up myself. <laughs> all right. Let's, let's press on. Uh, from AvWeb, <laughs> third quarter uh, GA aircraft shipments are up across all segments. Isn't that dandy? I just love to see that. It's not the old days. It's not the old days when Cessna delivered 10,000 single-engine airplanes in a year, but it's, uh, it's certainly better even than it was last year. And, of course, uh, the, uh, the company from, uh, what is it, up in Minnesota, I can't think of the name of it. They make a kind of a slick-looking single-engine airplane. Max, do you oh, know what Cirrus. that airplane type is? Uh, oh, Cirrus, right. Uh, they delivered the most uh, single-engine airplanes, I think, followed by... Uh, uh, Textron and uh, and Piper, but of course most of the Pipers and the uh, Textron airplanes are going to flight schools, uh, and I don't know how many uh, are going. Uh, how many of the Cirrus? Is it Cirrus? 
or is it Sirai? Yeah, you know, the the SR twenty uh, a high percentage of those do go to flight schools. You've got uh, like places like United Aviate, which I think bought twenty five with options for another twenty five. So the SR twenty twos, yeah, not too many of those go to flight schools, but a lot of the twenties do. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's really great. I mean, I'm I'm so happy to see that because I can remember back uh, not that long ago when. Uh, they were hardly selling any single-engine airplanes before uh, Cirrus really came on the uh, uh, on on the uh, t- ticket. But uh, again, it's it's not what it was a long time ago. But it's it's a darn good uh, push, especially in a in an economy where things are pretty tough. The trend is good, right? I mean. This is for the third quarter of this year, 2022. And total airplane shipments are up 6.7%. Rotorcraft shipments up almost as much, 6.3%. But this is compared to the same period in 2021. So I guess, you know, we talked about statistics before. I I would be curious to know how this compares to the pre-pandemic levels. You know, have we returned to those levels I couldn't do that for you right now, but I could get that information. Yeah, because I'd be curious. Because if if shipments dropped, I'll make up a number, 40% during the pandemic. And we say, okay, they're up 6.3% compared to this quarter last year. You're still in the hole, right? Still deep, deep in the hole. So I'd I'd, I'd just be curious. So this is really different kind of historically from what we've seen. Historically, the GA, uh, some segments will be up, some segments will be down. It's never a huge growth. Here we had growth across every segment, which is pretty remarkable. And what's really interesting was that uh, GA was almost kind of a a countercyclical industry, (laughs) except for the supply chain uh, problems. They actually grew in terms of number of orders, backlogs grew. Uh, So yes, they probably uh, in one or two years produced a few airplanes, fewer than they did in the prior years. Uh, But GA did really well because so many people said, you know, there's this virus thing going on and I'm just not interested in flying on the airlines for multiple reasons, including, you know, worrying about the the pandemic. So GA came out of the, uh, you know, the pandemic pretty strong. It it did not have as big a downturn as, as you might think. All right. Yeah. Maybe we can get a hold of the data on that. And I'm sure Rob will find the data to disprove what I just said. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, no. I I completely agree. Uh, And, and of course, business aviation really has set the general aviation back on its feet because they are selling business jets new and used uh, faster than it could even be produced. For many years, the story was piston sales up. Um, I, I'm sorry, turbine sales up, piston sales down. Uh, and I think we did have uh, something that was just the opposite of that uh, briefly in the, about a year or so ago. But this is pretty remarkable to have all, all segments growing. All right. Well, while Rob is looking up the numbers, <laughs> hopefully to get to a conclusion on that, we can talk about Loring Air Force Base. Actually, it's the former Loring Air Force Base. This was a large Cold War era base in far northeastern Maine. Um, Why would you want a a base in far northeastern Maine? Well, it was used by the Air Force's Strategic Air Command. It's to defend against an attack from Canada. (laughs) The Canadians, the evil Canadians, right? Um, well, it's, hey, it's even closer to Europe than, or and, and Russia than is Bangor, which you know is right now the closest airport to Europe, as we know. It's used for a lot of emergencies. 
Well, in 1994, the base was closed, and then it was redeveloped into an industrial and aviation park. It's called the Loring Commerce Center. And the airfield became Loring International Airport. But uh, now we see a company called DG Fuels, LLC. They plan to lease a little over 1,200 acres from the Loring Development Authority. And what are they going to do with it? They're going to produce sustainable aviation fuel, SAF, S-A-F. And they've signed uh, signed an agreement. Micah, they're, um, uh, it's an interesting location, right? You might say, well, okay, but why would you want to produce sustainable jet, uh, jet fuel way up there in the northeastern corner of Maine? But there are good reasons for that location. There are several good reasons, and uh, as, as listeners will know, I, I'm not a fan of some of the smoke and mirrors of sustainable aviation fuel. A lot of it's made from corn, which is, you know, made with nitrogen fertilizer that comes from natural gas. But this sustainable aviation fuel is going to be made by combining hydrogen that they're going to create from separating water using electrolysis, probably with solar and wind, because there's a lot of wind power up there, and combine that with wood pulp products and getting the carbon from there. And there's a lot of excess wood pulp in Maine. In fact, as we speak, as we're recording this show, um, 15% of the renewables being used in Maine for uh, making electricity is coming from burning wood pulp because it's done from paper mills and, and, and all the harvesting that goes on up there. It's, it's garbage that they're reusing. It's a byproduct, and right, of that process. It's a byproduct. So this is a fabulous way to use that, combine it with hydrogen, and create this jet fuel that apparently uh, is going to be 100 uh, percent. It's going to be uh, going to have a carbon intensity score, they say, of minus one gram per megajoule of energy, which is 100 percent lower than what conventional jet fuel is. Conventional jet A. I've never heard anyone so excited about wood pulp before. <laughs> this is great. You could you could be the spokesperson, I think. Well, you know, I'm a, always been a fan of pulp fiction, so why not? There. <laughs> so they're they're expecting apparently output of uh, 175 million gallons of this a year, and at that rate, they say that that will effectively remove an estimated uh, million and a half tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere annually. Um, as for the the market, I think they're looking towards you know the East Coast, farther to the South, New York City, that kind of customer base. But they're planning to break ground the summer of 2024, so it's not happening super fast. It'll create a lot of jobs, 2,300 jobs created for the construction and 650 permanent jobs at that location. So, uh, yes, this this is really encouraging. I especially like the, you know, what you were describing, Micah, about how it's using, you know, waste products from other from other industries. Uh, and they also mentioned the availability of what they call stranded hydroelectric power. And I've seen that term used in other uh, other contexts. And I, I think what that means is you've got hydroelectric power, but the capacity of the power plant exceeds the demand. So there is unused capacity, in effect, of the hydroelectric plant. Uh, so, you know, there's... Uh, uh, another good source of uh, in input energy for this process. 
Yeah, they're a very large company, and they seem to be worldwide. And uh, I'm hoping I'm going to do a little bit of research and see what I can come up with, and maybe you can too, Max. I think this is a, a company I'd like to get someone from there as a guest on the show to talk about their uh, their sustainable aviation fuel because it's the the first sustainable aviation fuel that I have seen that is actually made or created in a way that's not going to be it's, – it's carbon neutral, I think, is what it looks like. Very yeah. cool. You want those numbers from the sure. GA reports? Okay, we mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, how general aviation deliveries have changed uh, pre- and post-pandemic. And uh, I believe I'm looking at the 2019 numbers. And in the third quarter of 2019, they delivered 304 piston engine airplanes. And uh, in this year, it was 374. So that's well well over a 20% increase. Um, let me see what Cirrus has done since Max is going to ask that. 155 in the third quarter this year. And uh, in 2019, it was uh, 107. Uh, so again, it's it's up in the third quarter uh, on both of those aircraft, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, on that company. Let's look at uh, Piper. Uh, Piper in uh, 2019 did um, 62 uh, single engine airplanes, and this year in the third quarter they did uh, 46. So again, Piper's still down a little bit. But again, Cirrus, if we only looked at Cirrus, the single-engine aircraft deliveries are certainly up over the last few years. All right. Good, good. That's some uh, some good digging of the numbers. Thanks, Rob. Because, yeah, I think I think when you're yeah, when reporting you know, growth uh, statistics like this, it's, you know, it's good to have the overall context, the longer-term context, rather than just year-over-year especially when something like a pandemic happens in the middle of all that. Okay, now, what's up with the geeks? All right, Max Trescott, you got to tell us your story about flying today. Oh, it's not just uh, today. I figured out I've, I believe I've flown every single day for the last 21 days, basically the last three weeks, which is pretty remarkable, especially because I, I always work really hard to take off all day Saturday and part of the day is Sunday. But I've just had people who have things where they you know, need to get stuff done uh, to people who need hours in their aircraft for insurance purposes. So uh, I brought a uh, vision jet back last weekend from Knoxville. That was a, a fun, uneventful trip. And I made it fun and uneventful because I didn't change planes in Dallas, Fort Worth, and I didn't miss a connection. Instead, I took a, a Southwest direct flight to uh, Nashville and drove, got there a day early and just hung out and was uh, nice and relaxed and well rested for the trip home. So that was an awesome uh, trip. And then on uh, Friday of this uh, past weekend, was it Friday, Saturday? Now, Saturday on this uh, past weekend, I did a couple trips in the Vision Jet to Truckee, helped a gentleman move his family up there. It's ski week right now where kids have the week off for school. 
Uh, so we helped move the family up. So that was fun vision jet time. And then on Sunday, Monday, yesterday and today, gentleman who uh, needs to build time in his 206 for insurance purposes, we put together a large uh, round robin loop that uh, went first up to Truckee and then south to Mammoth Lakes and then out to uh, Canyonlands, which is Moab, Utah, and then uh, south to uh, St. George, Utah, down to Las Vegas, back through Mojave and back into uh, California. And the trip had, you know, funny things at the beginning of uh, both days that uh, kind of threw us slightly, you know, a curveball. Uh, the day we left on um, on Saturday, Sunday, we um, couldn't get the airplane engine started. <laughs> it was about an hour to uh, to get that, that done. Makes that was a colder a day harder, than doesn't it? Oh gosh, you know what? Even taxing is difficult when you don't have the, <laughs> with the engine running. Uh, and we and just prior to that, we'd had uh, you know two doors that were stuck. Took a while to get those unstuck. Uh, when they did finally come unstuck, the door hit me in the head. Fortunately, not too hard. <laughs> so it was just. And then later, I found that I'd cut my finger. Had to run around the airport trying to find a band aid. It was just one of those weird days where you're like, man. This is not the best way to start. Uh, everything went fine from there. We spent the night in uh, Moab, Utah. We got there this morning. It was cold. We did all the right things to uh, connect the uh, the oil heater up to the uh, electricity so that we could warm the oil because the oil started out uh, in the 20s. We wanted to get it well into the 30s before we started the engine. We started the engine, and then the owner said, hey, look, the alternator's not putting out power. So we had a dead alternator. I couldn't believe it. And so uh, the first thought I had was, well, let's fly to an airport with a mechanic where at least we can have them order one and leave the airplane. And this gentleman said, well, why don't we just you know try and make it back all the way to California without the alternator? I thought, well, that's actually a, an okay strategy. So right after we started it, we basically shut off all the electricity in the airplane and we uh, flew it to, uh, to Mammoth Lakes where we refueled and then did the same thing back to, uh, to Palo Alto. And there were some interesting considerations. So for example, since we no longer had ADSB out, we had to think about the limitations, you know, where you're required to have it, such as above 10,000 feet uh, within 30 miles of San Francisco and things like that. But by uh, basically turning the power off just before, you know, immediately after starting the airplane, we then had enough power for you know, 10, 15 minutes approaching an airport to get on the radio, get the flaps going and all that kind of stuff. Uh, probably the oddest thing was that this airplane had this standby attitude indicator replaced with an electronic one. And so we we had three standby instruments when the glass cockpit was totally turned off for our f roughly five hours of flying. But the backup battery would then run down on that. So then we would be flying with only the altimeter, the airspeed, and the compass, plus the iPad. So it was kind of interesting that, uh, you know, when you lose all the electricity, in this case, we lost the attitude indicator as well. And we had the same instrumentation that you would have in a Piper Cub. So a really interesting kind of day. Max, I thought that you were not allowed to shut down, fly without ADSB any longer whatsoever. Well, we didn't really have a choice. Uh, you know, it was that. What are the legalities around that? Seriously. Always have a choice. Well, what I'll tell you is that we actually, um, for the final uh, leg, the second leg, I called uh, NorCal Approach to ask for a waiver uh, on it. Uh, and that's something historically we could do when transponders weren't working. And you can do the same thing with ADSB out. So that's what we did. Hmm. Hmm. 
Max, I know you well enough to know that you are not a risk taker when it comes to flying. This kind of methodology, this kind of approach, um, I think was probably, uh, you know, carefully thought through. Yeah, it's certainly, um, you know, the, the only real risk we faced was the same risk that we would have, you know, faced if we had everything, which was if the engine quits, hey, now we're a glider. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's true whether the glass panels are working or whether they're not working. And it's interesting with uh, with an iPad in the cockpit, boy, navigation, you know, pretty, pretty straightforward, even when we were down just to airspeed, uh, altimeter and compass. Hmm, interesting. But of course the weather was also good. Oh, you know what? That's a really excellent point. It yes. was there there are <laughs> if you look at the surface chart, there are three high pressure areas pretty much over Nevada and Utah. And so we had severe clear on both days. Good point, Rob. <laughs> we could not have pulled yes. this off if we had to fly uh, IFR. Now, I know some pilots that when they fly, they always fly in their in, in their go bag. They have a uh, handheld transceiver just in case the radios fail. Do you do that, or did you have that with you, or did you regret not bringing it along this time? You know, I have one uh, that the battery pack needs to be replaced on, uh, and so no, I actually don't have a working one at this point. So, yeah, that would have been nice to have. Uh, but by turning the... Uh, yeah, of course, you'd run out of battery on that eventually as well. Uh, and so we were able to use it as we you know, announced on, for the non-towered airport at uh, Mammoth Lakes. And also we got flight following for the last mm, roughly 10 minutes into uh, to Palo Alto. So, yeah, we, we, we were able to talk when we absolutely had to talk. All right, good. Rob, how about you? Any uh, Anything interesting going on in your world? Uh, yes, uh, Big things are happening here in the Midwest. Uh, actually, a couple of weeks ago, uh, our local pilots association, the Chicago Executive Airport Pilots Association, elected me as their next vice president. Yeah. Wow! Uh, and uh, yes, congratulations. <laughs> I speech. I, I speech. was completely confused when they put my name on the ballot because I thought they wanted a president of vice but they said no you've got that wrong again uh <laughs> no seriously ni- nice bunch of people um uh so i'm i'm uh, happy to help out and uh, it's it's always neat to watch people uh, earning their wings and and learning about it and uh, uh remembering the day when i was there which was back in the last century i believe uh, but anyway, but the, the other thing that happened this week, uh, of course, uh, we were chatting about Mr. Mr. Musk and the Twitterverse and how uh, those f- people who have come to uh, see Twitter as a uh, an extension of themselves in the aviation world uh, were aghast when it looked like Twitter might shut down. And uh, it, it didn't happen. I doesn't mean it won't, but... I guess they've been bailing out of Twitter, uh, Twitterverse there in uh, in Silicon Valley. Is that correct, Mr. Trescott? Have you seen them bailing out of the uh, building or or? What? <laughs> well, the building's up in uh, San Francisco, so that's about oh, yeah, thirty five okay. miles well, north of me. But yeah, there there have been huge layoffs and a lot of you know people who've left voluntarily. So yeah, it's going to be interesting just to kind of watch and see what happens. Well, and what what uh, uh, some folks did, and I uh, I have to admit it wasn't me, uh, but uh, they they've gone to Mastodon, which is a uh, uh, they they call it a Twitter like uh, uh, alternative. It's 
kind of different. But if you go to uh, the My Transponder page on uh, or server on uh, uh, Mastodon, you'll find a lot of uh, your favorite old aviation folks up there. And uh, I I logged on Saturday morning and people started popping up and I went oh there he oh wow and that's oh yeah. so there are a lot of uh, familiar names up that way and uh, now again I don't claim for any reason to be a a mastodon uh, expert but uh, it's it's an interesting place uh, works a little different from Twitter but. All everybody did was say, if Twitter goes completely dead, we'll see you up on Mastodon. Yeah, I created an account there, too, and I used uh, Leo Laporte's twit.social server, uh, which uh, he's going to keep running for it. And, uh, and if you want to know a little more about how Mastodon works, listen to, uh, to Saturday's uh, The Tech Guy. The, just Leo this past one? It. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah, he explains it a little bit. How, how in the world do you find other servers that have topics of interest? Well, all the servers are interconnected. What you need to do is find the people that you want to follow, and then you plug that in, just like kind of on Twitter. But if I don't know the people, what do I do? Okay, we better not turn this into a a mastodon. uh, If you don't don't know the people, then you just use Twitter. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I I think, uh, like they said, like uh, Sam Clement said, the the rumors of my death are, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, Greatly exaggerated. Greatly exaggerated. I think the same thing's happening with Twitter. I don't believe the sky is necessarily falling just yet. And and I heard people say over the weekend that just like the Titanic, I am going down with the ship right to the last moment of Twitter. (laughs) I think that's a little bit too much, but hey, that's just me. And we should give a good shout out to our friend Rod Rakick, who founded My Transponder. Oh That's, gosh, what, I, probably a dozen plus you. years ago. And oh, at he, least more than he, that, I think. He ran that as I so. still got an orange t shirt of My Transponder. I do too. In fact, I was looking at it uh, just yesterday, Rob. I was wiping the car with. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I. Uh, just kidding, Rod. Well, it, of course, a uh, a social uh, uh, media spa- place for uh, for pilots. It operated for a number of years. He uh, turned it off at some point and went on to do some other things. But now he's turned it back on, so you can uh, find it through Mastodon. So it's back. And I found uh, Jason Rabinowitz on Mastodon, and I found uh, John Ostrauer on Mastodon. But I think everybody has created accounts just in case, because nobody's tweeted that I follow. In about three days so far. So Yeah, I'm going to look into it. All right, Micah, what's, uh, what's going on with you these days? Well, I had a really interesting experience the other day that I forgot to put in the notes. But uh, uh, as um, I, I tweet a lot of pictures of aircraft from uh, Portland, Maine, and uh, particularly from uh, Mac jets. And there's this beautiful Cirrus Vision jet, an SF-50, that I tweeted. I put a picture up of it, and uh, it's a black and white paint picture uh, well the picture's in color the vision jet is black and white and I took it on a gray day and it almost looked like a black and white painting and Max saw it and I saw the the, the plane there the other day and so and I was went inside and I, I know the people at the at the FBO and uh, and I saw that the the pilot was in the plane so I figured I'd wait and compliment him on it because it's just beautiful it's really a um, the nicest colored one that I've seen in a long time and he comes out and 
I introduce myself and I hand him my uh, Airplane Geeks business card, which he takes. And he asked me, uh, he said, oh, have you ever been to the Spurwing Farm Pancake Breakfast and Fly-In? And I said, well, yeah, we covered it on the show. He says, well, that's why I moved up here. And he says, you know, I've been looking for somebody to talk with about uh, airplanes. Maybe we can get together sometime. I'll try to send you an email. By the way, my name is John Bush. John Bush is... George W. Bush's nephew and George uh, H. W. Bush's, I'm sorry, George H. W. Bush's nephew and George W. Bush's cousin. And it turned out he bought a house up here and he said that's the reason why he bought it. And uh, it was just kind of interesting to meet someone that way. I don't know if I'll hear from him or not, but it was very, very exciting. Hmm. So, But the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, some of you who uh, listen regularly may have heard the interview that Brian and I did with, uh, with Ryan of Flighty, and I had the opportunity to use that app the other day when some friends were stuck and had a flight canceled, and sure enough, just as he said, the information that comes out on that Flighty app is faster and quicker than what the airlines put out and what the airports put out. They had a flight that was canceled. Uh, or it looked like it was going to be canceled. I didn't know. I called someone that happens to work for that airline. He said, "Ah, everything looks good. Everything looks, oh, wait, it just got canceled. And right when he said it, because this hasn't been posted yet, it's going to come up in a few minutes. Right when he said it, boom, the notice came in on Flighty telling me that it was canceled. It was just unbelievable how that worked. And, um, and Brian and I are going to be bringing you some more interviews uh, here on the Airplane Geeks. we got a couple coming up that I think will be really interesting and uh, you guys should enjoy. And Brian, uh, we just released the 25th, 25th uh, episode of The Journey is a Reward. Brian's going to finish up his uh, – he's got his last flight's book to get his 1K status. Uh, everything is paid for at this point, and he should finish up sometime around May. And if you want to follow his journey, you can catch us on the Journey is the Reward podcast. And uh, and one last thing, we're recording this on Monday the 21st, just before Thanksgiving. And this is, you know, Black November. It used to be Black Friday. And uh, we've talked about Apple AirTags on this show quite a bit. And if you haven't bought any yet and you want them, right now on Amazon and at Target, they happen to be on sale for the lowest price I have ever seen them, lowest price ever available, a package of four for $75. So if you need a set and you're listening to this in time, grab a set now because that's a great deal for four of them. They're normally $25 a piece. So that way we could track Elon Musk if we put one on his person? Sure. I don't know if he'd allow you, but (laughs) Nilo Scum might. All right. So so listen, everybody, we've... We've actually buried the lead here, and uh, we can we can address that right now, right away. And so, without further ado, we'll ask David Vanderhoof to tell us, hey, David, what's new in your life? Everyone knows I'm a geek. Everyone knows I'm a sci-fi nerd. Um, if you've listened to this show at all, you know that um, Rob and I are Doctor Who fans. Well... Um, two years ago, I had my first date with a lovely woman who decided that my social media, that my dating profile that included Doctor Who was worth taking a chance on. Well, over the weekend, um, the first thing I'd like to say is, believe it or not, I was at a Doctor Who convention and someone comes running up to me and goes, you don't happen to do the Airplane Geeks podcast, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, as a matter of fact, I do. 
and we chatted for a little bit. And ironically, he had been to the museum on Friday, and I wasn't there because I was at the other convention. So it was great chatting a little bit. Uh, I, I owe him a pin, so get, make sure you get me that email address, that mailing address. But like I said, I met Amber over Doctor Who. She and. This weekend, we went to a Doctor Who convention in Long Island um, called Long Island Who. It's a small convention. It was it was primarily Doctor Who. There's some other fandoms, but it was primarily Doctor Who. And for all of our UK listeners, you probably know who Peter Davidson is. Um, he was the fifth doctor. Uh, and I had arranged with the, the showrunner of the convention, uh, Ken Deep, um, Ken Deep and I go back because Ken Deep was the first Ken's podcast project was the very first podcast I ever listened to. Ken was the one that convinced me that I should be active and contribute to various podcasts. Thus, I sent an email to a guy named Max Flight. What a dumb name that was. And here I am. How many years later? Um so Ken, I thank Ken for that, but he also gave me the privilege of meeting uh, Peter Davidson. And after we got our picture with Peter Davidson in front of the TARDIS, um, I got down on one knee and asked Amber to marry me. And um, luckily she said yes. So it was a really lovely weekend. And I've said this in the past, but you should always embrace your fandoms you know, I mean, even if it, we talk about airplanes and airplane geeks here, but anytime you're a fan of something or you love something, you should always seek out people who like the same thing because you never know what you're going to take away. In this case, the love of my life, um, I, the woman who I can single handedly say uh, changed my life. I've never been happier in the last two years as someone who supports me, loves me, and um, basically we share so much together and she's an incredible woman and I'm so happy. And the fact that we could do it on a convention, on something we love, it's close to our, our quote anniversary. Um, it's going to be fun having Thanksgiving for the first time with her family at our house as um, a formal couple will be making Thanksgiving. So I wish everybody here in the States a happy Thanksgiving and um, know that we always thank um, all of our listeners around the world this time of year and towards the holidays, what it means that you guys do for us as people who do the podcast. You guys mean the world to us, fans that come up to us, at random places like Doctor Who conventions um, mean the world to all of us on this show. And we've all grown in our fandom, um, us as podcasters, being fans of our fans and the fans you liking us and being so kind and wonderful. So it, it was a really good weekend and I look forward to more coming. Um, next year's going to be a big year for the museum. But most of all, I'd like to thank all the listeners for all the support you've given us over the years. I mean, it's you guys are definitely some people who we are thankful for and why we do it every week. 
<laughs> Here goes Rob. Oh. David, you're engaged. That's amazing. <laughs> Mazel tov, David. That's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, news. congratulations, yeah. David. Yeah, Yay! Great job. Congratulations. And and just. Wow! Come David. on, keep it up. It took me a long time to get these people in here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but they all showed up. Yeah. Hey, nice job. All right. Couple of um, yeah, congratulations, David. That's uh, that's really wonderful. And uh, as you know, I've had the pleasure of meeting Amber a co- on a couple of occasions. Um, just delightful woman. Really like her a lot. And uh, I can see how you guys are uh, a great couple. Hey, Max Flight, what's going on with you? You've been home a couple of weeks now. I've been home a week. That's about all. Eight thousand fifteen miles of driving. On that road trip, so uh, still. How many gallons of gas was that? Oh my God! Don't even. Don't even ask. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I'm not feeling particularly carbon neutral at this point. That's for sure. What do you get about about two gallons a mile? No, no, it's much better than that. (laughs) But it's not. It's not great. And a lot of that was in four wheel drive. Four wheel drive low, in the outback, some public lands and all. How many miles did you drive? It was eight thousand and fifteen miles. Uh, Gene Shepard used to talk about his old man's Oldsmobile. You could hear it in the driveway sucking up gasoline as it's sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to say my 75 Omega passed everything but a gas station. Yeah. So I'm here for um, a week or two and then getting uh, – well, actually, tomorrow I'm heading down to uh, my mother's place for for Thanksgiving. going to spend a week with her. So uh, actually, this episode may come out a day later than usual because uh, I'm driving tomorrow <laughs> back in the car instead of uh, doing the post-production. But we'll try to get it done as quickly as possible. But uh, we just have a couple of, uh, of shout-outs here, some things I wanted to mention. We, we received a press release titled, Newly Established Grand, uh, Grand Doms of Aviation Nonprofit Aims to Celebrate, Educate, Inspire with New Scholarships. And uh, this is a group of professional pilots. They formed this organization in 2017. And they, uh, again, are looking to uh, celebrate extraordinary achievements in aviation to provide uh, education or advance education, I guess I'll say, through scholarships, uh, inspire through mentoring and networking. Um, they've, they've recently earned their 501c3 nonprofit designation, so that gives them some, some growth opportunities. Um, this is something that um, you'd want to tax deferred. You might want to check this out. We'll have the link in the, in the show note, granddomsofaviation.org. The, uh, the group of women that are involved in this are absolutely spectacular. The, the leadership group uh, includes... Uh, Sharon Presler, she's a Southwest Airlines 737 captain. She was also one of the first women who was, uh, who was selected for fighter pilot training after the combat exclusion policy was lifted in 1993. She was the first woman to fly the F-16, to fly combat missions, and instruct in the F-16. Uh, another example, Christine Mao. She's an F-35 instructor pilot for Lockheed Martin. 
she has a long Air Force career. Others uh, includes uh, all women, an A320 pilot, a woman who served for 20 years in the Air Force, the first Latina airline pilot for American Airlines, number of other accomplished women aviators. So uh, again, uh, interesting organization. We'll have a link to them in the show notes. And then another press release we received concerns a charity auction for AN225 debris pieces. The idea is to raise funds for Ukrainian soldiers. So you'll recall that this Antonov AN225 was destroyed by Russian airstrikes in Ukraine, right? That had been the world's largest airplane. So uh, something called the Defenders of Kiev picked up several pieces of the airplane. They're now being auctioned off to raise funds. Now, this is for non-lethal supplies to uh, Ukrainians defenders. And uh, there's a, a, a website. This is, they're actually going to try a second round. Um, in the first round, they, uh, they didn't get any bids for, uh, for these pieces. And I'm not sure why. It might have been because the, the promotion was maybe too thin. Not enough people knew about it. But if you uh, go to the website, we'll have a link in the show notes. It'll um, indicate that the auction is closed. But I, uh, I asked the organizer who... Um, who says that they're going to restart this and uh, hopefully more successfully. So you can take a look at it. I haven't vetted, personally vetted, you know, any, any of this. I'm just assuming that their representation is, is accurate, but it's uh, something that you might look at if you're interested in providing that kind of support. And a little bit of listener mail. Holger wrote in and said, uh, I really liked the last episode. Linking Boeing's announcement, he says, not only to develop a new middle-of-the-market aircraft with your piece about propellers made me think maybe they need to have the technologies in place to come up with a zero-emission airliner. Being an aerospace engineer, he writes, I remembered my lectures about propulsion systems. Propellers have an extremely high bypass ratio, which makes them so efficient, but they're uh, their size, the airspeed uh, at the tip comes close to sonic speed, and that is the reason why they are slower than jets. Uh, the German DGLR published an extract of a paper on the climate change effects of air travel. It came up with a surprise. He says, two-thirds of the emissions that contribute to the climate change are not CO2, but vapor, NOx, and other effects that occur when combustion takes place in the higher atmosphere where airliners fly. He goes on, to become zero emissions, we, as an industry, have to stop burning stuff. SAF and hydrogen would just reduce the emissions by a third. It concludes that to save the climate, our industry would have to swallow a bitter pill, fly less, especially short distances where the time savings are negligibly small. In addition, I think there it takes a lot of energy rather just to lift something off the ground. Energy a car, a train, or a boat doesn't have to spend. But coming back to the propeller, if this propeller uh, so driven by an energy source that does not create vapor and NOx like a battery, this would be a zero-emission aircraft. I believe that there are far more uh, better engineers than I, but uh, let's see, far more better engineers than I am, uh, but who are uh, enthusiasts like me, so there's a chance to solve this challenge. Finally, uh, Hoger says uh, he's an aerospace enthusiast since the second grade. 
Uh, he says, when my family flew to Mallorca, if my eyes would have allowed it, I would have tried to become a pilot, but not being able to fly, I wanted to build the machines that fly. I've studied aerospace engineering and specialized in propulsion technologies, served as a lieutenant on the front line of a Tornado fighter bomber wing, worked on Eurofighter cockpit as software project lead, spent time with Collins and work now for a deal as a program manager. And he says, I like your podcast, especially with the episodes when you focus on safety, but also personalities who have had an impact like Wally Funk. Please keep going on. And that's from uh, Holger. And, you know, and, the, I was just going to say, he, he makes a lot of good points. And uh, it just, again, there, there's no free lunch, you know, in terms of that whole environmental thing. You've got to decide what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. And we need to start looking at mitigation of how we're going to handle the climate change, probably more than what we can do to prevent it. It's just, it's an interesting concept. Yeah, there, there's a lot of issues here. And I, I think we've mentioned you know, previously that on, on the uh, overall s- scope of things, aviation is not exactly one of the huge contributors of uh, uh, greenhouse gases, let's say, global warming. But it almost doesn't matter. And this goes back to the, what we were talking about earlier on in the, in the, in the news segment. There's a – with business jets, you know, there's still a perception and many people – Target aviation as uh, you know an evil contributor to uh, to greenhouse gas emissions, and you can't ignore that. And just saying, yeah, but we're not that big. <laughs> that's not convincing um, to the people. It's who... the most visible, and that's uh, that's the difficulty with it. You don't see the ships at sea. You don't see the trains, and people, you know, think that electric cars are the solution. So yeah, I actually this is a real. Uh, tangent, but I actually calculated once how much methane gas cattle produce across the globe. And there's some data out there for, you know, over the period of a year, uh, how much methane gas does a typical cow or, you know, cattle produce and how many of them are in the world, which I think is 2.5 billion. That's the cattle population across the, across the world. Um, but when you do the math, I think it came out to something like, I think it was like three and a quarter million tons of methane per year. Billion. Billion, yeah. 300 and, billion, right, yeah. 325 billion tons of methane produced by cattle in a year. So that's huge. I mean, it's, you know, it's McDonald's that's, you know, that's the <laughs> so biggest contributor. We're, we're talking cat fart or uh, uh, cow farts, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, okay. It's amazing. But, you know. Well, and then like of course, said, all you need is one good volcano to wipe out all to wipe the out everybody. Yeah. yeah. If we could just capture those cow farts, we could power a gas power plant. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> we could make the energy to make ours saf. All right. So, um, last Chris wrote to us. He said, in episode 200, and, no, in episode 723, you talked about suites on planes. He said, I've seen some videos of people that travel a lot and post reviews. Tiny box isn't a good description for the fancy ones. That's what I called it. I think I called it a tiny box, talking about these suites on commercial planes. He says, check out this Emirates A380. So there's this YouTube video he sent us. He says, jump in about six minutes, 40 seconds in, and you can see the shower on the plane. Um, I've been in hotel rooms that were not as nice as this cabin 
on the A380. This was phenomenal. So, yeah, okay, I, I officially, thanks, Chris, uh, retract my my comment or my characterization of being uh, as some of these suites being a tiny box because that's definitely not true on the Emirates A380. It's uh, it's not true on a, on a lot of those on a lot of the, the, the big aircraft. They're they're smaller, but you know people people don't like to fly seeing other people anymore. Everybody, you know, you, you, when Brian and I traveled together, we couldn't talk to one another because that's how business class is. You're separated from every other person in business class. Uh, we had to text one another in order to communicate. And we were across the we were across the aisle. That's funny. <laughs> So, but you know, he mentioned the uh, the shower on the Emirates uh, A380, and you know, one of our friends, one of our favorite doctors, Doctor Steph, has taken a shower while flying at forty thousand feet, and uh, uh, she said it was a marvelous experience. And I can't imagine a nicer thing to be able to do as you're flying overseas after you know twelve hours on a plane. I wish, uh, you know, I, actually, I wish Brian had that experience as he goes back and forth to Singapore because sometimes when I'm doing the podcast, I can smell them from here you know (laughs) yeah now now i know that my mind has been on other things because when we were when you were talking about suites on airplanes and little boxes Mm. all i could think of okay who's handing out chocolates on airplanes these days (laughs) oh oh that kind of sweet time (laughs) very good yeah i I can see how that it's a box of chocolates hey who are you on mastodon micah I main fly. It's uh, fly. it's. Hang on a second, and I'll give it to you. It's. Uh, I, I got to look it up because I never know. It's. Uh, We're gonna have to check this out. So, if you're listening, if you're on Mastodon and feel so compelled, let us know. What do they call it on Mastodon? Main fly uh, at twit dot social. It's going to be a name plus a server. Okay, a name is so. A server. I am main fly like I am on Twitter. M a i n e f l y, but it's not. You can't just put in at main fly like you can on Twitter. You have to put in the server that you're using. So it's for me. It's main fly at twit, which is this week in tech. It's Leo Laporte's server. Main fly at twit dot social. Okay, cool. So if you feel so inclined to, you know, share yours with us, I don't know what we'll do with it. Maybe pass it around ourselves. Let us know if you. Well, I don't know. This could get. We could go down a rabbit hole with this. But you know what? We're gonna let we're gonna, we're gonna let Rob figure this out. Rob, you could be our mastodon tech support. There we go. After all, he is a fossil. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> oh, that oh, was good. Oh, that was very good. Stop bringing up the elephant in the room. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Oh, Great. okay. You see what I got to live with? Yeah. This is what, wait, oh my, you've only got two followers, Micah. Now you have <laughs> three. three. All right. So let's wrap this up. Thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. The uh, You can find us at airplanegeeks.com, of course, as always. The direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 725 for the episode number. Send us an email. You can reach us at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. David Vanderhoof. Well, you can find me on social media, not yet on Mastodon, but you can find the Airplane Geeks on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Though we need to probably work on that one. So, and, and, of course, you can find me at the American Helicopter Museum and lurking around various Going forward, various sci-fi cons with um, the love of my life, Amber, 
And of course, this time of year again, we want to say thank. I want to say thank you to all of our listeners for all of the years of joy and happiness you've brought to us here doing the show. Absolutely. All right, Max Trescott, how about you? Well, when I'm in town, or even when I'm not in town, you can find me at the Aviation News Talk podcast. Uh, we did miss an episode last week because, hey, I just haven't been in town. But uh, if you want to send me a note, just go to aviationnewstalk.com, click on contact at the top of the page. And Rob Mark, how about you? Oh, Jetwine. Jetwine on, let's see, what am I on Mastodon now? Jetwine at by transponder, I think, or something like that. But Jetwine's still on Twitter and Jetwine.com, where Scott and I still write the blog. And uh, here, and uh, who knows where else. I'll be out there trying to get a, a suite. But listen, seriously, I couldn't have said it half as well as David did about what we think of our listeners. So, David, what you said you spoke for me too. So yeah, here, here. happy Thanksgiving to all of those of you in the U.S. that uh, celebrate it. And uh, for the turkeys, well, you know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> the turkeys. <laughs> all right. I'm Max Flight. You can Micah. find me at 30,000feet.com. You forgot Micah. You forgot Micah. Micah, how about you? <laughs> Crap. Well, apparently, I, I, I'm not following anyone yet, and I don't know if I'm going to be, be looking, but I'm apparently I'm on Mastodon at Mainfly at twit.social, but really I do check out Twitter every day until it's not there anymore, and you can always reach me at uh, Mainfly, M-A-I-N-E, like the state, Fly, F-L-Y, Mainfly, on Twitter, and uh, you can always catch me on the Journey is a Reward podcast with former associate producer Brian Coleman. Uh, if we've said anything, if I've said anything to offend you, it's I am really offended at yahoo.com. It's an address that Brian keeps up, and we check it all the time. So, <laughs> and, all right. And, yeah. and and have you gotten any mail from uh, I'm offended? Uh... Not yet, but give us time. <laughs> okay, we'll have to work on that. All right. Please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Good night, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, and thank you so much. But most of all, thanks for listening. 